when I asked those leaders who had fallen prior to the fall, what was going on with you? Tell me, describe what was happening with you. And almost to a T, every one of them said a tape or a thing was going off in me that said it all depends on you. In other words, raising the money, keeping my spiritual life together, keeping my family together, it all depends on me. And I would say in the Christian life, if we are getting to that point where you think it all depends on you, that is going to be, that might be the most critical red flag. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Every time I read the news about a scandal involving a powerful leader, I remember Mark Rudder's teaching on leaders at risk. So I invited Mark on the show today to tell us more about what to watch for in our own lives or in the lives of others that might be signs that we're not doing well. Mark is the U.S. Director of Leadership Development and HR. Enjoy the show. Every time I see a moral failing come out in the news media, I think back to, I think it must have been new team leader training or some venue where I heard you share this curriculum called Leaders at Risk. And I I just think that was some of the most helpful material I'd heard on what to look for in yourself and others that might signal that things are going south. And um, I wondered if you could share with us what is leaders at risk? Because I think a lot of us don't even know, aren't even, um, haven't been exposed to it. And how was it developed? Yeah, the, it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, early in the two thousands, as an organization, we were facing several significant ministry failures, leader failures, and crew. And most of them would actually bump up to the top where Dr. Bright was at and Steve Douglas. And um, so there was a, a, working, a working group commission with Dr. Henry Cloud, myself, Dennis Kaspar, our legal counsel, and several other leaders to look at what were we missing as an organization, what could we do differently as an organization to either mitigate the risk of leader failure, moral failure, um, and uh, what what we could learn organizationally then what could we learn about people and because I was doing leadership development at the time and still am LDHR um, it was a opportunity for me to kind of see the other side of leader development that would be how do you mitigate leadership failure character failure while at the same time being proactive about how do you actually inform our staff about what it takes to actually thrive in terms of your character and your heart. And so we spent two years, I would fly back and forth to the LA, Southern California area, and we'd look at cases of leaders in our ministry who had fallen, men, women, young, old, uh, some serving internationally, so it was a, vi- a variety of, of cases. And we would come in and we'd just, we'd look at the time that they joined our staff. We looked at what people had said about them in terms of the people that knew them. We looked at the nature of the, the failure. Um, it could have been anything from embezzlement to marital infidelity, um, team blowups, and, you know, a gamut of different kinds of issues that would, would be under moral failure. 
And um, as we did, we basically went with the idea of what what could we learn as an organization that would actually mitigate this, or what were we missing as an organization? You know, these were leaders that were leading at fairly high levels and crew, and um, they're obviously we we were concerned, and so. We did that for about two years. It was a it was a formal study just as an organization, but for me personally, because I was doing LDHR, I began to take it further. I was I was at one of our trainings um, one summer out in Colorado, and someone spontaneously said, "Hey, you're in this working group dealing with leader failure. Can you tell our our team leaders about what you're learning?" And so I kind of shared what some of the red flags were that would signify some behavioral kind of clues that there would be something wrong. I talked about some of the profiles of people who are more at risk for failure. And then I shared what I knew then about how do you mitigate it, what we could have done different organizationally. And after just kind of informally sharing that, people started asking me to talk more about it. And so eventually I went on and I did my my, uh, doctor of ministry thesis on the topic of leadership failure, but looking at it with the idea of preventing failure and also instilling a healthy leadership culture and crew. So that's that's kind of how it started. So it's been a journey from early 2000s till now because it's still obviously a very popular topic and very timely in our culture. You mentioned that you've kind of seen it all. I know you've been in LDHR and and um, risk management at some point, were you involved with that? No, or just we work with risk management. Primarily, it's the leadership development side that I work on. Okay. And you said you've seen it, seen this with men, with women, with young, with old. Um, leader, leader, moral failing or leader failing, you called it, doesn't discriminate. So what are some of the typical things in a ministry like crew that tend to put leaders at risk? And is it different for men than it is for women? Well, I think there are some differences, but for the most part, and I'll kind of go back to what's more foundational, if I could. Um, When I think of leader failure, you know, God has designed us in a way that we're to function healthy character functioning started in Genesis and the created order. And that was that we would depend upon him as our source of life. We'd attach to him as a source of life. Um, We were also created that we would actually embrace reality and truth on his terms. We'd be obedient to his truth and reality. And third, he created us so that he was actually our king. He's actually created us so that we'd learn to submit to him to bow down to him, to respect him, obey him, and respect others. Those three foundational areas don't really, they're, they're actually the key to any kind of behavioral, spiritual health as, is living out God's design. And so um, typically what you see, um, and it doesn't discriminate between men and women, is you typically see breakdowns in one of those three areas. And that is how do people attach to God and what he offers for life. You know, we could tell, you know, that's where addictions might come from when we deviate from that design. We also are looking at how do people face truth and reality? Are they willing to say, give me feedback? Are they willing to own truth and honestly embrace truth? And then the third area is this idea, are they able to submit? Are they able to respect one another and, and bow down and actually worship God? instead of themselves. And so that is, those are the key areas that are, are key to both 
character and spiritual health. And so when you see a deviation in any of those parts of the design, that's typically where you'll, where you'll see these red flags that would signify not always failure, but signify areas of lack of health in terms of our character and spiritual structure. Can you say more about what those red flags are for those of us who haven't seen the curriculum? Yeah, so so some of the red flags related to, and again, when we first did this study, we just looked at case study after case study. And so by doing that, we saw patterns of behavior. So it wasn't like we had our in our mind all these red flags. So we just, you know, from experiential learning, listening and looking at case studies, we saw certain red flags that seem to be repeated over and over. And so the ones in the area of life and attachment, and, and this is where red flags related to how healthy a person is in terms of relationships, a red flag might be something like they're disconnected. When, you, when you're talking to them, you don't sense, as someone has said, that there's anybody home. They're, they're kind of hollow. They're like a shell of a person. Um, Another another red flag related to the relational life area would be um, they don't have a concentric circle of friends around them. So typically when I look at choosing leaders in our ministry or moving leaders up, we're looking at do they have a concentric circle around them of people that know them and where they're getting known by the person. And, and if they don't, I'm very leery of actually you know, in endorsing someone for higher levels of leadership. So that's a huge red flag when people don't have friends that they're sharing. And it doesn't mean, you know, we all have times in our seasons of our life where we don't have people that are close to us. But if that's a pattern over time, that can be risky. Um, another thing would be uh, a, a form of just um, uh, manipulation uh, that would be a red flag. Uh, it would be... Um, kind of one-up, one-down relationships, that can be a form of relational um, red flag kind of symptoms where someone is, is um, they can't connect mutually. They can't have a mutual relationship. So what we're looking for is you want to be have someone who's healthy. You want to be able to relate up to people above you. You want to have mutual relationships. You want to be able to relate to people that may be serving under you in terms of your leadership. So those, those would be the relational red flags. The ones that relate to truth in reality are, is the person able to take feedback? And I always ask groups of people, and maybe the first thing I'll ask them is, when was the last time you got feedback and how did you respond to it? Did you push it away? And I'm not saying I love feedback. You know, I eat feedback for breakfast. I don't necessarily do that, but I've grown to actually embrace it more. But a healthy person actually embraces feedback. A lot of the leaders that failed had a very difficult time over time hearing feedback, taking truth. Um, and um, so there would be blaming. There could be minimization of feedback that they're given. They could sometimes become the victim and make out the person that's giving them feedback out to be what we'd call the perpetrator. And so those would be red flags, the inability to take in feedback and truth. Uh, and then the area of power or, or the issue of um, uh, the third area that's related to submission and authority is red flags related to how does the person give away power and authority? Can they give away power and authority? Do they have to always be in charge? That would be a red flag. Uh, another red flag would be powering over people. Um, it would be relationships maybe in marriage where one, one spouse is powering over the other, and that could be men or women. It's not, it's not an issue of, of gender. It can be just, we call it kind of power imbalances. 
um, that would be a red flag. It could happen on a team, not just in a marriage relationship. Is, is Are people on your team able to be mutual with one another, or does someone have to be in control? Or do you have to be controlled or under control of people? That could be a red flag as well. So there's there's many, you know, territorialism is a red flag. So it's my budget, my people, and people that are aggressively fighting for that. It can be a red flag. It doesn't mean if you have one or two of these things periodically, you may be having a bad hair day, so to say. It's like that's not going to signify you're going to fail morally. It just means when you see behaviors like that, it's, it's, it's a good time to take a look under the hood and say, why am I powering over people? Why do I always have to be in control? Why is it that I'm not showing up and being vulnerable or empathetic relationally? Um, why am I attaching myself to work more than people? You know, and we might say, well, they're just a task person. Well, when you're attaching yourself to work more than people, that means you're probably not filling your life with relational things that God has designed for us to have to make us healthy, you know, people that were, were living out his design. So you mentioned looking under the hood. And I'm glad because you, I've heard you speak on this a few times and you usually have some good word pictures for self-reflection or self-checking your heart. How am I doing? One of them is look under the hood. One of them is what's is has to do with a garage door, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there's a couple practices associated with just becoming healthier. And, and there are two, two things that I think about. One is personal vigilance is really important. The only problem with personal vigilance is most of us are not that self-aware and most of us aren't really, we don't find looking under the hood that gratifying, okay? So, and usually people that are at risk and have failures over time have managed to compartmentalize their lives so much that they don't find it gratifying to look under the hood. So that's why you need the other side, which would be, I'd say, organizational vigilance or the body of Christ vigilance. So. It'd be Sam, it'd be like me. If I see something in your life that is a pattern, that would be a pattern of red flags, I might even take the initiative to say, hey, Sam, I just noticed on our team you're controlling. You, 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 you tend to control or I kind of feel controlled. Can you tell me more about when, when does that happen for you or maybe what's behind that? That would be being more organizationally or vigilant beyond just trusting that you're going to figure it out yourself because we're just not always that self-aware. So when I think of the word pictures... Uh, the 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 um, looking under the hood is one of them. The other one is the my garage story, which is a big. It's it would take a lot to explain the whole thing, but but here's this. Here's basically the idea of it. When I was um, leading our U.S. leadership team in an exercise to help them kind of think through their personal development, I'd asked a question at a retreat, and the question is, what is one area of your life that's holding you back? That if you were to address would actually help you move forward in your leadership, your progress as a leader. And so I had them go away for an hour or two and reflect on that. And there was several other questions I gave them. When they came back, we shared our the thing. What was holding you back? What was a, a limitation that was keeping you stuck, so to say? And so we went around the room and we shared. And it, was, it was an emotional time. It came to me and I shared couple things, but the one thing that kind of stood out was I shared about how my garage was just cluttered. It was cluttered. I couldn't find tools in it. We couldn't park cars in there. 
and and actually um, it was it was it was actually draining me you know mentally every time I'd see it I'd think oh you're such a loser you know whatever it is and and my desk was the same way and so I'd shared that and then I thought that's it everyone's heard it I've got it out there and and, you, and we actually shared what's your plan to deal with it and I said well I'll, I'll go out there and and you know three hours a week until I actually clean it out so I just assumed that was been there done that and it was over. Well, at the end of the week, Steve Sellers um, and, and several others on the team came up to me and said, hey, we want to come over and help you with your garage. And as soon as I heard that, I said, I can do it myself. I said, hey, I, I, I can do it. I mean, I've got an, you, know, you heard my plan. And he says, now, how long did you say that would take? And, and how long have you been trying? I said, well, like 10 years, kind of off and on. I've been trying to get my garage cleaned out. Well, um, <clears throat> what happened is he, he, they insisted, hey, we're going to come over as a team on such and such date, and we're going to help you with your garage. Well, I, I tried to say no a hundred times, and he said, no, we're going to come over. And, and I remember what triggered in me, um, Sam, is a lot of shame. I thought, gosh, I try to keep my garage door shut. I don't want anybody to see what I'm hiding and, and the fact that I'm not as organized because I had in my mind the picture of the – great leader and crew is someone who has a clean garage, a clean desk, and, you know, very few problems. And I didn't want to be exposed as not all that great as a leader, especially to our U.S. leadership team. So the day came, um, and I had to open up the garage door. And it was amazing how much I learned about the gospel in doing that, that, um, number one, the trigger for me, opening that door, it was like all of a sudden I was exposed Things that I'd been kind of hiding behind there for years were now exposed. The other thing that it did, it kind of showed me the power of community and friends because what happened in just four hours, everyone rallied around Patty and myself to do our garage. And by the end of the day, I could park two cars in there. <laughs> and I remember Steve Sellers, and I, even as we're still finishing up, I said, well, you guys can go now. You've been here long enough. And he goes, no, we're not leaving until you can get those two cars in the garage. And it was a picture of what happens when a leader is able to say, I have a need, and then is willing to receive help. And so that's the garage thing. And so I ask people all the time, it may not be a cluttered garage. Some people have perfect garages, and I envy them. Uh, that's part of my character development. But I'd say there's, there's something in our lives that we're stuck in or that we're afraid to expose that when things are buried in the dark, they don't get better. And so... I would say as it relates to this idea of leaders at risk, when leaders are able to say, hey, I need help. Here's what I'm dealing with. Would you help me? That's when the grace of God is manifested through God himself and through other people. And that's when we actually see breakthroughs. So that's the garage thing. So I don't know if I did it justice, but that's the, that's the crux of it. That's so helpful to think about the role of community in self-reflection because when you say self-reflection it it at first glance it sounds like well maybe with god or just alone in my quiet time i will be reflecting on how i'm doing but i was at a meeting recently and we did an exercise in listening the whole topic was what does it mean to listen and what does it mean to be heard and Two of my friends got on stage in front of a large group of women and they ran through a listening exercise. And the goal was one of them asked the other, tell me a time this past summer when you really saw God 
or I think it was really heard God speaking to you or really saw God work in your life. And then they had to wait seven minutes and let the other person respond. And they couldn't say anything. And, and then they flipped it. And, and then the other friend asked, you know, t- okay, tell me the same story. And then she couldn't say anything for seven minutes, which is a long time, sure. honestly, to not say anything and to listen. And then all of the women in the room paired up and went out and did the exercise in pairs. And a lot of them came back in in tears at this realization that either, wow, I don't know how to listen, or this is the first time I've really felt listened to and heard and known that I can remember. And so it was this really powerful moment where we had this realization as a group that we God designed us to be to know and to be known by him, but also by other people. And even in my own life, I, there's two friends in my life who are, are the best at listening to me. And they are the friends that I always confess into. And it's because they just let me talk long enough. And if I talk long enough and feel safe, then I feel like I can show them exactly who I am, right? I can lift up the garage door, lift up the hood, whatever. But that kind of goes back to the root of one of the things that you said is really important is that we have friends who, who know us and who we know. Because God made us that way, to be in relationship. Yeah, Sam, I would say um, <clears throat> one of the things that you if you want to think about people development or leader development, when I asked those leaders who had fallen prior to the fall, what was going on with you? Tell me, describe what was happening with you. And almost to a T, every one of them said a tape or a thing was going off in me that said it all depends on you. In other words, raising the money, keeping my spiritual life together, keeping my family together, it all depends on me. And I would say in the Christian life, if we are getting to that point where you think it all depends on you, that is going to be, that might be the most critical red flag. Um, And you can hear it, people say it in a number of different ways. They isolate themselves. That probably means they're probably hiding or trying to depend on themselves. But I, there's two words, I call them as kind of the, the deadly duo. What happens at that point is you fall into two traps. One is what I'd call self-reliance. That's the garage door thing. I was self-reliant. I thought, I've got to make this garage right, and I'm going to do it. If it takes me till I die, I'm going to do it. So I boxed out people. I became very self-reliant because it all depended on me. And then the second thing is it's secrecy. Once you becomes highly self-reliant, all depends on me what you do is you pull away and you actually bury stuff in your life. And that, where most of the leaders fall is when you get to the point where you've so, become so dependent on handling it yourself. That's why we have addicts. Addicts are trying, they're really actually trying to, you know, on their own to get out of their addiction, which never works. That's why they need, you know, 12 steps or they need obviously community, they need the Lord and people. But the secrecy part, once you actually become really self-reliant and then you bury things deep, you don't get the help that you need. 
And that's why in, in crew, I am so concerned that at every level, um, our staff, our leaders, volunteers, have a concentric circle of people that they're listening to, that they're able to tell their story to. Because when you tell your story, actually people come alive listening to your story because then they feel they're not alone because they know you're just, you have the same kinds of issues they do. So I think that's really powerful. It's a powerful exercise that you did as well with your friends. Well, you mentioned tapes. And this is another word picture that you've, I've heard you use several times that has been helpful for me. What do you mean when you say the tapes that we play? Well, it, it goes back to, um, I always have to explain this, especially to the younger generation, because tapes, some people don't understand what a tape is. <laughs> what is a tape, but, first of uh, all? But, but a tape, uh, technologically, I can't even define what a tape means. But the reality is back in the olden days, before we had tracks and MP3 players and everything else that we have today, when you recorded something, you did it reel-to-reel, and so a tape would be played over and over. It could be repeated over and over. The same track could be played over and over. And so I was um, the idea of tapes came about is one of the healthy way that a person gets healthy as a leader, as a person, is you have to pay attention to the clutter the tapes that run through your mind's that, mind that's contrary to the gospel. You know, um, so, so what happened for me, a couple things, I had um, had an experience where um, with, I was with Henry Cloud talking about a leader, uh, leader who I'd been coaching and known for several years well, and this person had spiraled out of control, had major, major failure kinds of things happened to him, and I was so baffled by it. I was a coach. I'm thinking, what kind of leader am I? I wasn't even aware. And Henry was saying, you would have had to be, you know, he was trying to comfort me, and he said, you would have had to have a, a thousand hours clinically with someone like that to understand that. But then Henry turned to me and says, how are you doing? Kind of as the caregiver. And I, I was kind of like a deer caught in the headlights, and I kind of said, well... I didn't know what to say. Henry's a counselor. I didn't really want to, you know, I didn't really want to get into all this stuff. But anyway, as he heard me tell my story, Sam, he said, he said, Mark, as I hear you talk, you sound like a flat piece of paper. You sound like you're, he used the word dulling, D-U-L-L-I-N-G. And I knew that didn't sound very good. That wasn't a clinical word. But he said, Mark, you're, you seem like you're losing your passion. And I said, well, what do you do about that? And he says, well, do the things you were doing before you got lost your passion. And so he says, are you connecting with people? I said, well, not like I had been. I've been working so hard. And so he said, why don't you start connecting with a small group of people? So I did. I got in a, what I call a, a process group, or we, I call a red dot group. So that is you share the red dot where you're at today, like on a map, the red dot in a mall, where you're at today. And we just come in, we process, how am I doing today? And then um, in that group context, someone, one of the guys said, hey, how about if we go, there's a, this thing called Journey to Your Heart, and um, it's for men, men's retreat, and, and we all decided to go. So I went, and we got there with this Journey to Your Heart conference or retreat, and it was a bunch of men, 20, 25 or so men, and a, a woman that was leading us, leading, facilitating the time. And I thought to myself, what did I get myself into because there was no TV, there was nothing there that was, I felt like was a man's retreat. And so we got there and it was like, the first exercise she had us do, she says, tonight I want you to go back to your room 
and I'd like you to write down all the tapes that play in the back of your mind or your heart that actually, she didn't use this word, but are contrary to the gospel, that actually paralyze you, keep you stuck. There are things that are either done to you growing up, things you didn't have growing up, things that you're kind of, you know, that are triggered now for you. And so I went back through and thinking, this is an easy exercise. I could, you know, maybe I'll come up with five things. I didn't realize I'd written down, you know, you know, 50 things that were tapes that would go off my head. I'd be in a leadership meeting here at Crew around a table of really good leaders and tapes like you're stupid would go off or tapes like, who are you to be in this room? Or tapes like, you know, they're going to figure you out that you're not that great. And, I, and so I had all these tapes from growing up. You know, no one ever told me I was stupid, um, but somehow I had that tape um, going off. So the tape idea is to have people think through what are the things that you hear in the back of your head that you know are not the gospel. Uh, and and so, so that practice of actually thinking through when I'm in a meeting, what's going on in my head here? And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just kind of end the meeting and say, you know, right now, I'm just going to be honest with y'all. I'm experiencing like I, I, I feel like um, you guys are all smarter than me because in the back of my head, I'm thinking I don't really belong here today. Or, and inside so disclosing that, I feel like I'm doing a couple things. One is it's helpful to me to kind of get it out there, expose it. But also what it's created in, in our leadership environments is more vulnerability by everybody else because you realize all, you, all of us as leaders have tapes, right? We, we have them from mm-hmm. growing up. Because we're high performers, especially in crew, you're a high performer. And so there's lots of things you should know better, you should try harder, you should have it all figured out. Those are some of the tapes. So I would say one of the good practices would be to periodically take some time and say, what's going on in the back of my mind right now that's actually hindering me from experiencing what I would call the music of the gospel, the power of the gospel? You know, because the gospel tells me God delights in me. I mean, that's really hard for me to believe. But over and over, he says, I'm well pleased with Jesus, you know, my son Jesus. And because we are in Christ, he's well pleased with us. And that just seems so countercultural for me to think that. But that's one of the things he says. I'm delighted in you. And that doesn't mean he loves everything I do, but I stand in righteousness. I stand before him with full delight. And that is pretty, pretty cool. That's a great new tape or new music of the gospel to have. Yeah, I like how you refer to them as tapes because it seems like you could have that conversation with anyone. What what are the tapes that you play in your head? Maybe the spiritual language that we sometimes use to speak about that. It, lies that we believe or lies from the enemy. It's and it's all about our identity, like you were saying, who we are in Christ. Yeah, you that's a great point. Yeah, I another word would be lies. I love that. Sam, I think, you know, when you look at the scriptures, it describes the evil one as the father of lies. Jesus talks about him being the great accuser. He's he's totally angry right now, and before the end of the world, he wants to bring everybody down. So when I think about it, what he does, he takes those tapes, those lies, and then he uses them to disempower us, to really take away the music of the gospel. So I think, you know, as, a, as workers, you know, Christian work, we're all actually called to serve Christ. But the reality is I think we have a target on our back. And man, those tapes are really things he can use to really bring us down. So yeah, lies is probably a very accurate, maybe even a more accurate word um, than just talk about the tapes. Well, and I think the tape that you shared about being in a 
a setting, whether it's in a boardroom or just a, where you, you know you're among high perform, other high-performing leaders, uh, I've heard so many people lately come out with that sort of the imposter syndrome. They just feel like, what am I doing here with all these leaders? I'm not qualified to be here and these people are all qualified to be here. But but it is so powerful, like you said, when you share that you're feeling that way because it invites others to just say, oh, me too. And then that imposter syndrome, we realize, oh, we all have imposter syndrome. Okay, that's freeing. It really is freeing. It's freeing, and I think it makes for great if you want your teams to get closer. That's one of the things I do. It only takes a few minutes to have everyone sit down and say, hey, what are the things that probably you're feeling or you're, you're, that are going off in the back of your head, lies that you're believing, tapes, that actually undermine your ability to be here today? And it makes for a great conversation. Also, it makes you feel empathetic because you think, wow, I didn't know you struggled with that because you, know, you always look like you have it together. But anyway, that's, I, I agree with you. Thanks for listening. Join us again in two weeks for part two of Leaders at Risk, when Mark will share practices from his own life, like the prayer of examine, which keeps him thriving in his relationships with God, himself, and others. Have a great week.